Welcome back to the Shog Absorber. It is excellent to have you along with us, whether you are listening or watching. Welcome. It's good to have you here. And uh, welcome to only one person today, Tim. Here with all my friends. <laughs> Me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, Joel. That's the only, the only friend that's here. He's the only friend. The only friend in the village. <laughs> Imagine if we were still a village. Kind of is a village. You live in South Village. I live in South Village. Yeah, it's a village. Mm. Apparently, the vertical village. Oh, we well, yeah we you said that a few weeks ago, didn't did you? I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, you did. It, okay, like. a vertical village. Mm. Does it feel like a village? Uh, it feels vertical. <laughs> okay, so it doesn't feel like a village. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Oh, I mean, there are. There's a little bit of acquaintance. You get to know different people. You get to know people in your lift, uh, <laughs> people on your floor. Yep. So, I. It's probably a little bit more compact than a suburb. In, in terms of bumping into the same types of people yep. regularly. Uh, but I don't, know. I, don't, I don't know if it feels like a village. Okay. I think it's aspirational. Aspirational. I mean, like, what does a village look like? That's the other thing. Does it have to be like a pre-industrial revolution village? Yeah, I think so. I'm thinking of like oh, that's what you Beauty want. and the Beast. Like, you know, Belle and her provincial oh, French yeah. town. And it's, everyone knows each other and she walks through the oh, streets. Like, um, and Frozen as well. Hey, Frozen, yeah, yeah, yep. yep. That's what I'm thinking of when I think of village. It's not like that. What a lovely place to live in that would be. Like, yeah, I'm. I don't know if I would get bored of that. I'm not sure mm. of my personality. I definitely. I really like where we are in suburban Sydney. That we are close enough to the city, the CBD, that it's easy to get to, uh, and you can spend time there in amongst the. Yeah, the busyness of that, but I don't live there. I don't think I could live close to the CBD. Mm. It would be too busy. But I also wonder if I would go stir crazy living anywhere more remote than suburbia. Yeah, I uh, think I'm the same. I need to be reasonably close to the action. Yeah, I feel. I mean, when I went to New York City, that was like fun. Felt very inspirational to be there. Right. I'm like, I don't think I could live here. Yeah. It's just so. I'm Everything not sure if I have any desire to visit New York City. Oh, I, I think you should. You think I should? Uh, yeah. It's I didn't think it, it wasn't that high on my list, but then we went, I'm like, I can see why everyone enjoys New York City. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was like more, it was busier on the subway at 10 o'clock at night than it was at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, interesting. And when we went, so we were only there for five days and we were doing it as part of a trip for a friend that was getting married in Chicago. So we went to, we actually flew to New York first and we were there for five days and we got off the plane, I can't remember what time it was. It's probably like, oh. what we did was we just went all day. Like you just wouldn't, we got home at midnight, for example. Even though the first day we flew in there, we got home at midnight, slept, got up at eight o'clock, went again until midnight. Like there's just so much you can do. Yeah, and, and it's always open. Area. Yes, that's, that's yeah. probably contributes to it, yeah. And I think that's what frustrates me sometimes about suburbia but even close to the city i mean it's really hard to find a cafe that's open past three o'clock in yes Sydney. yeah so to try and find an afternoon coffee i mean you're kind of left to making it yourself which is a lot cheaper and probably <laughs> wise use of funds but i mean cafe like there's nothing open uh mm. and yeah things kind of shut down the cbd even feels like it shuts down by five, six o'clock, it doesn't feel like there's a lot going on maybe i'm just hanging out in the wrong parts but that oh maybe <coughs> uh, but then don't they some of other people are saying, like, I remember when shops didn't even used to be open on the weekend. 
Yes, absolutely. And now it's yeah. always busier on the weekend and people get upset about that. So Yeah. Can't yeah, I can remember when our local Coles opened for the first time on a Sunday. Really? Uh, yeah. So that was would have been late 80s, early 90s maybe. Mm. So, was, yeah, in my memory. I can't decide if I think we should go back to it or not. And I don't think we're ever going to go back to it. But, yeah, I can't decide whether it would be any uh, helpful thing to do or not. It's interesting. There's in America. There's a a chicken shop called Chick Fil A, mm. which basically just does burgers and whatnot. And they, because they're owned by Christians, uh, one of the things that they've consciously done is to not open on Sundays, yeah. so that they don't have the option of asking their staff to work on Sunday. Now, whether that's a yeah faithful rendering of keeping the Sabbath holy or not, regardless of all of that, mm. it is interesting that they've made that as a business decision. And it doesn't appear to impact their business significantly in that they're still very reputable. Mm-hmm. Lots of people go to them. They seem to be profitable. They've got franchises everywhere. They're one of the largest chains in America. They also have the longest waiting list for franchisees. As right, well. there so you go. So to apply for a franchise, it takes a long, long time to yeah, actually ever okay. get the chance to even pick it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it is interesting because presumably they would also get – millions, potentially billions of dollars a year mm. by opening on Sunday and get, they're mm. getting that foot traffic. But they've made the ethical, moral decision to mm. say, well, we're not going to let that impact our conviction. So that's it's an interesting mm. thought that you could sustainably run a business in the 21st century by not opening on Sundays. Yeah, that's an interesting counterpoint to what I was saying. Yeah, that's right. I think Chick-fil-A also pay their employees a higher wage than most other um, right, interesting. Employees, which I should check, but uh, we can we, we can get to that in a second. What I did want to talk to you about, though, was um, we like to talk about books. You do. And I said that I just... There's two books I want to talk <coughs> to you about, actually. Was I just finished um, a couple of weeks ago, said I was reading a book called Deeper, which is a reasonably short book, but um, I finished it this week. And it was very impactful on my faith and just how I thought about my relationship with Jesus, which has been fantastic. And then uh, in that book, it was talking about a um, couple of the, the icons of the Re- of the Reformation, so uh, Luther, Calvin, and a couple others. And then something else I was doing mentioned the Reformation, and so uh, I asked you, I texted you, didn't I, and said, have you got any good books on the Reformation? Because I don't feel like I know anything about it. And uh, you came back to me with a, uh, I even can't even remember what the book's called now, right now that I was about to say it, but do you remember what it's called? But oh, I'm just looking up our message conversation. Oh, excellent. Uh, Rescuing the Gospel Rescuing by Erwin Lutzner. Erwin Lutzner. Lutzer. And so I think we've talked about the re- like the Reformation and its importance and, and impact on us, but I was just wondering, is there any reflections that you have around the Reformation? Because I was in, I've only just started reading it and I went into the second chapter and we're talking about, it, w- it was talking about the precursors to kind of Luther and, and those kind of things, uh, like and like Calvin and uh, those kind of, ref- who call them reformers? Yeah, reformers. reformers I was going to call yeah. them reformees. Reformees. No, they're the ones that are being reformed. They're, oh, they're, yeah, they're okay. doing the reforming. <laughs> so they're reformers. <laughs> yeah. um, what a fascinating time to be part of, I think, as a Christian, that it's almost like you are fighting desperately against the establishment to say this is not what the Bible and what God wants. Mm. And so I was just interested in your reflections on that time, I may as well, because I was 
this is really just personally for me because I, I mean I'm I'm learning about the Reformation. So any any thoughts on on that before I get to my my second book? I uh, I generally affirm the Reformation. Yeah, that's good. a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, no, I think I mean obviously really significant wherever you land on the uh, Christian spectrum. Uh, even if I mean if we've got any Catholic listeners, uh, you know Orthodox listeners, Pro- Protestant like. Wherever you are, it was a really significant time. And so much of that was, and the, the cause of it was tied to the fact that it was also part of the, um, in the Enlightenment that's happening at that time. Humanism is kind of kicking off, mm. not always in the same way as we think about secular humanism today, but that idea of going back to the humanities, going back to the ancient Greek sources, ancient Roman sources. And so that kicked off this high interest in looking back in history and seeing what what were the original sources like that we think that we have, um, that we think we're basing society off and our understanding of politics and academics and universities and Christianity, the gospel, and what, how do we know about the original sources? So part of that was a big interest in the Bible and looking back as trying to get as close to the original source of the Bible as possible. And as they were doing that, part of the understanding is their reading these original sources and for Luther, for Calvin, for a number of others, uh, you just mentioned you've been reading the the pre-reformers, mm. so Huss awesome. and Wycliffe yeah. um, and guys like that who are reading these scriptures and realising, hold on a sec, there seems to be a discrepancy between what the Catholic Church, or the, the only church at the time, the church teaches and what the Bible is actually saying on some really key doctrines. And for Luther, a key part of it was, how do we know that we are saved? How do we actually have a surety of faith? How do we know that we are appropriately in the kingdom? And a large part of the church tradition up to that point had emphasised that you go through the particular motions of the sacraments, you go through uh, confession, uh, and there was also what Luther eventually identified as abuses of those doctrines, which was buying essentially your righteousness through works and acts and donations, etc. And what he realised as he's reading through Galatians, he's reading through Romans, is that's not what Paul's talking about. There's this huge thing about it being a free gift, and that God approaches us, he rescues us in Christ, and then any good deed that we might do is a response to that. Um, And so we talked about, um, at a course we were doing last weekend, the the difference between an N-shaped understanding of religion versus a U-shaped understanding of religion. I got this from Christopher Watkin, I think, uh, who wrote Biblical Critical Theory, and he talks about an N-shaped gospel. So if you can imagine a curve going from the bottom up and then down again. So it's humans trying to act and work and be seen by God, trying to do enough so that God takes notice. And then if you do it in the right order, if you say the right words, if you offer the right sacrifices, if you do enough for God, then you work your way up to God and then God from there, the downward slope is God then blesses you out of that because he's looked at you, he's recognised, he's assessed you and decided, yeah, okay, that person's worth blessing, that person's not, whatever. And Christopher Watkins talks about that a N-shaped understanding of religion is a very pagan understanding of religion in that you're trying to uh, 
earn your way to God. You're trying to be seen by the gods. You're trying to find favor with the gods. And he says, actually, the God of the Bible is consistently, Old and New Testament, all the way through, he is a U-shaped God. And that is, it comes from God down to humans. He is always the instigator of blessings. He is always the instigator of relationship. He's always the instigator of calling and election. And then he comes down to us and gives us those things as free gifts. And then it is still right that we respond uh, and so there is right action out of that. So we act towards God. We offer him praise and thanksgiving and worship and honouring. We're talking this weekend at Zorro Church about being servants of God. And so a servant is one who uh, does the will of the master because the master has commanded it. And so all of that is true and right, but it's only because God has acted first. So anyway, in the Reformation, this was really key because Luther is realising, and, and again many others, that the Catholic Church appear to be teaching something like an N-shaped gospel yeah. where we are, have to, you have to be baptised, you have to be in the church, you have to do confession regularly, you have to do First Communion, you have to do all these different sacraments. And then if you buy these things, pray these prayers, your time in purgatory working off your sin might be a little bit less uh, and finally you might have done enough in your life and in the afterlife to have gotten into God's good graces and therefore be allowed into his forever kingdom and Luther realizes no actually it's they've got it all back to front uh, it's actually God acts first and so everything we do is in response to and not in order to gain God's favor I think it's important to to reiterate that that it seems like a, just prior to the Reformation, it was that N-shaped, like you said. Mm. But what Luther and the other reformers did was what God does, which is completely turns everything upside down. And that, that, I think that's a to make it a U-shape. And I think isn't that a theme in the Bible, right? It's that you know even the Israelites believed that, and the Jews believed that God was uh, Jesus was going to be this, uh, you know, what is it, knight, <laughs> knight in shining armor to come in and just destroy the whole place and reclaim the kingdom for them but that was not that's not what Jesus actually did right and that's a, 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 just a one example of how God uh, like turns everything upside down I remember we did a, a sermon series here at Sorrow Bowl called Upside Down Living and was about that was how, how how much of a difference like God's transformative power through what Jesus did on the cross turns all of our lives upside down and I think that's why I find the Reformation interesting is it because it feeds back into we're doing the uh, certificate of theology course, as you spoke about. Just again, as and and playing off the idea of that book I was reading deeper was that as I get deeper into my relationship with God, it's talking about not going doing more; it's going deeper because that's what He does with us. The deeper we go with Him, the more we realize how He has turned things upside down. And that's why I found that's why I wanted to bring it up because mm. I think it's and then to see what the reformers doing are trying to enlighten people of that and saying, hey, this is not what's going on here. What the church is saying is probably not in keeping with what the Bible's saying and not in keeping with that idea of like it's completely flipped upside down. Do you, yeah, do you think so? Absolutely, yeah. And the the yeah. ethics of the kingdom and the story of the kingdom is constantly undermining our expectations, and we. <laughs> The, I think it partly it's our sinful nature. I, I reckon that it's we expect to have to work towards God's favor. We expect to have to work towards 
you know, gaining things and God is constantly turning that upside down and saying, no, 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 like I'm the one who is going to act. I'm the one who is blessing. I'm the instigator in these things. And so, yes, we, we talked about the upside down kingdom, the upside down living, which was largely on the Sermon on the Mount and the, the unexpected ethic that comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, um, the Beatitudes particularly. Um, and yes, we, you've got Christ, as you said, who was the unexpected saviour. He did not perform in the ways that was expected of the coming king warrior that they were expecting. Mm. He uh, usurped all of their expectations and actually conquered death by going to death um, and then rising again. So, yeah, you've got all of those different things. And, and yes, I think it's, it's wonderful when you see uh, things like the Reformation where uh, particular people, God uses them and equips them with insight and wisdom and spirit-filled understanding to actually be able to help correct uh, our misunderstandings mm. And I think, um, yeah, obviously the Reformation has been really, really significant in that. I do think that in our, it's very easy for us to go into binary thinking and very simplistic thinking. Mm. And I think the way that I had heard of the Reformation talked about or church history talked about was there was Jesus and the apostles, then everything went bad until Luther came along um, (laughs) and then everything's been awesome since. And uh, obviously that's super simplistic and you realise when you say it like that, but often our thinking of that is the case that um, everything went pear-shaped after Paul uh, and Luther rescued Paul and therefore don't worry about all that 1,500 years in between. Uh, Paul, uh, Luther got it right and so we can just kind of go from there. And I think that that's simplicity for a number of reasons, but there's lots of really great, interesting things that we can learn from our Christianity and from the church from those 14, 1,500 years yeah. in between the early church. Uh, there's lots of really great saints. There's lots of really interesting people who don't all have the same thinking as we have and part of the great value of reading uh, saints from outside of our time is that they have understanding of scripture, they have thinking about ideas and even if we will conclude that they're relatively right, relatively wrong, it's still helpful to learn from them and to think about different ways you can think about scripture and learn about the Christian life. Um, And likewise, not everything, you know, in Luther and from Luther uh, and through the Reformation is amazing all the time. So there's, yeah, there's problematic aspects of Luther's character, um, particularly in his later years. Uh, he has quite a lot of writings that are anti-Semitic uh, and he gets quite angry. Really? And so a lot of people have said, oh, do we cancel Luther? and Do we ignore him? And I, it's like, well, the answer is no. Like we're all complex people. And it, one of the interesting things, because I am... German, I've got German heritage, mm-hmm. and until no, probably in the last 10 years where I've started to investigate my German heritage more substantially and my German history more substantially, you know, the two things that pretty much everyone knows about Germany uh, is the Reformation and Nazi, and that's kind of <laughs> like, you know, if you're going to sum up the German history in the last you know, 2,000 years, you kind of know those two things. Um, and... I think both of those things, particularly you know, Luther's character and then obviously you know, everything to do with Nazism uh, and Second World War and everything about that is it has meant you have to wrestle with this complexity of people are complex, people are not simple and there is uh, this sort of simplistic, unless everyone is good all the time we have to cancel them and never learn anything from them, uh, it just doesn't work. There's, mm. We have to keep looking and assessing and 
just because if someone says something and it's right, it is right. And if someone said something is wrong, then it's wrong. It doesn't matter who that person is. And there's a great, there's a Russian guy actually, um, Solzhenitsyn, who has written a very large book that I have not read. Um, but one quote I know comes out of uh, that um, is the idea that the, the dividing line of morality does not line between you and me. Uh, I'm good and you're bad and we should, I see myself as the goodies and you as the baddies. But the line dividing morality cuts down the heart of every individual. And I think that having a good, healthy understanding that we are all created in God's image and we all suffer fallenness means that, uh, of course, I would expect to read things. In someone who wrote as much as Luther, there are going to be things that I disagree with. Uh, and because he was uh, a great Christian man who did wonderful things in Reformation, he was still a fallen man and had particular... Uh, proclivities and understandings and thoughts about the world that are not what I would have um, and that were harmful and disastrous and for a number of different reasons. So mm. you, living in the mess of all of that is totally okay. Uh, and I think that uh, having a complex understanding of history, of humanity and uh, the, yeah, Reformation is a good example, but there's lots of complexity there and it's good to be able to just be not anxiously engaged with all of that history. Yeah, that, that's. I mean, that's my intention. So thank you for lending me the book, which I really appreciate. Is it uh, the solid solid? How do you say his name? Solid Nitsen. Solzhen Nitsen. Um, yeah. Gulag Archipelago. That's is the that one. The book? Yeah, yeah, I haven't. I haven't read that either. But yeah, that's it. That's one to check out because there's a lot to do with labor camps and stuff like that, isn't it? That's what gulags were. Wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, this is a very sketchy memory. People can fact check me. Please don't take any of this as gospel. But uh, he was arrested by the communists in Russia. Mm. Uh, spent time in the gulags and the prisons there. And um, yeah, his book is basically. Rec- counting his experiences um, in those prison camps and uh, presumably the life leading after that and the life that mm-hmm. he had after that, et cetera, et cetera. But it was in those prison camps that he is thinking and, and mulling over uh, life and philosophy and morality and he comes mm-hmm. up with that idea that actually the, the, that line that divides is in the heart of every person. It's, um, apparently he worked on it for 10 years. Right, and it was circulated illegally in the USSR before it was officially pub- published, and then the KGB got so worried about it that they tried to locate copies and identify who was reading it. There you go, which is uh, an interesting. So quite a subversive book. Yeah, that's what she, I was talking to someone about um, at work the other day about. Uh, it's an interesting. Um, he was talking about someone, friend of a friend, knew someone who. Uh, uh, was part of the uh, internment camps in during Nazi Germany. Right. What were they called? Um, concentration camps. Yep. And um, how there's the and often there's like obviously being in a scenario like that would really cause you a lot of trauma and issues following that. But there's also um, uh, and I'm relating it to the to Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, about how when they come out, there's some people that come out of it and really impact other people. Like there's who write books and uh, talk about how I know how bad the human condition can be because of the concentration camps. Look how much we have to be grateful for. And I find that that's an interesting juxtaposition given what they grew up in and what they were part of to be thrown into a labor camp or a concentration camp, whatever, whatever it's called just because of being who you are and who you were born as. And then that there are some people that have come out and said, look how grateful we can be for life and how exciting 
things are when there's I'm not stuck in a concentration mm-hmm. camp. So, yeah, very encouraging and very interesting that people are able to come out of it in that sense. My second book that I wanted to talk about, though, mm. uh, and it is related to the first, is we were talking about getting deeper and uh, in relationship with God as in in regards to that book that I was reading, was I'm also reading a book called Atomic Habits, which is a a very popular book. It says, I have it here, and it says it's sold over 3 million copies. It's quite a lot. Yeah, it's quite a lot. Uh, Written by a guy called James Clear, and uh, it talks about making small changes in your life in order to make a bigger difference later on. And so he talks about how habits are the important... Whether we think about it or not, we have habits. And we perform habits because our brains want to automate a lot of things during our day. And, mm. and uh, I mean, it probably would be pretty tiring having to relearn how to brush your teeth every day, for example, <laughs> like, using that kind of example. But yep. the reason I brought it up was he talks about saying, if you, whatever habits you'd have and whatever habits you perform and engage in, that's a vote. You are casting a vote every day towards the identity that you have. Interesting. Or you wish to have. Yep. And so in reading through this book, I was saying, well, hang on a sec, my, as a Christian, my identity is in Jesus. So what does that look like? And who's informing my identity? Is it Christ or is it my habits in order to be, have a Christian identity? And it's related to even to the things we're talking about with the Reformation. And so I think my question was going to be, what do you think about that, first of all? Because it'd be easy to just say, well, if you just read your Bible and blah, 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 then you know, that's, it'll be your Christian identity. But when you say, when I say that to you, what habits do you do that you think you are voting or casting a vote towards the identity that you want? And how does that relate to being a Christian, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have not read the book yet. I've actually just borrowed it from the library, so I'll, <laughs> I'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Um, the, the idea that we are habit-forming creatures makes sense. I mean, yeah, I have talked before about how I really enjoy when um, – psychology and sociology aligns with what scripture tells us about ourselves because mm. it's we're, we're identifying God's thoughts after and we're seeing those kind of things tie in together. And so uh, the fact that God has made us to be people that who will do regular things and have um, and that that will form us into particular beings makes sense uh, that we would give have certain rituals that we would do and a large part of the Torah the first five books of the Bible um particularly uh, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, have a lot of rhythms of life that you will continually go through that will form you into being a Yahweh follower, but one of the people of God mm. uh, in the Old Testament. And so it makes sense that uh, by continually doing these things, these rhythms, these habits of life, uh, would be shaping us and forming us and helping us to grow up into maturity and into um, yeah, into Christ. And I also think uh, the, there's the, the Anglican tradition, you know, go back to the 1662 prayer book and when Anglicanism was first coming out of the Reformation and making it to self-distinct from the Roman Catholic Church, that the, you met uh, every morning and every evening at church, even morning song and evening song, um, and then there was a high point on Sunday we did an even larger service, but the if you were sort of this ideally living in the rhythms of the Anglican church, you were going to church every morning uh, and every evening and you were reading Psalms together and having short prayers and then going home for dinner or out to work for the day or whatever it was. And then you would come on Sundays for a longer service. 
And one of the things that that does, and I'm, I mean, I don't know my English history well enough to know how in reality that actually worked out, whether that was actually the rhythms of life in particular villages in England. But I can imagine that someone who is following in those habits, that every morning you're getting up and you go into church and then you're going out to the fields for the day. And then every evening you come in from the fields and you wash up and you go to church and you do some more psalms and you do some more singing and you do some more prayers and then you go home for the evening. Uh, and that, of course, that would be forming you and shaping you into being someone who knows scripture, is embodying scripture, is reminding yourself of scripture. And it's, it is shaping your thought patterns and... I wonder as well whether any of the recent, like, you know, last 10, 15 years, one of the big growths in neuroscience has been this idea of plasticity of the brain, that these sort of regular habits that are actually shaping, that if that are the, if they are the pathways that your brain is using, if they is the way you are remoulding and um, reshaping your brain to be very God-directed, to be very scripture-filled, to be soaked in these things, to be constantly turning to prayer, that your reflexes, your habits, will end up being Godward-focused. And so I think it makes sense that you would have these regular habits that, and I know James Clear talks about the habit stacking, so yes. you're getting this habit naturally flows to the next one, next to the next one, and so you're building in this intentionality. I want my life to be shaped like this because I this is my vision of who I want to be. And so as a Christian, I want to be someone who reflexively loves God and loves others. And so what are the things that I am building into my life that will reflexively help me to love God and love others? So a huge part of it is going to be knowledge of God's Word. And so uh, knowing the scriptures, reading the scriptures, listening to the scriptures read on a you know, podcast or something like just having the scriptures always around and always uh, in, we'll be building that habit. It'll be rewiring your brain. The language of scripture will be becoming clear. And then I also would be someone who reflexively prays out of that. I want to be someone who naturally um, goes to God in prayer. Uh, I've, I've known families, I haven't done this, but I've known families for whom every time there's, they hear a siren, a siren, they stop and they pray and say, obviously, God, there's an emergency going on right now. I pray that you'll be with the first responders and with those who are involved, that your grace may be with them and you may protect them and care for them. And you do that enough and you reflexively, every time you hear a siren, you stop, you pray, you know, and then you go on having entrusted it to God. That's the kind of reflexive habits that I think that we, can be, we could be building in ourselves to become people who are responsive to God, talking to God regularly, you know, praying without ceasing because there's always things that we're having in conversation with God. And it would be the same with, um, when we talk at church about loving God, loving others, same for loving others. What are the things that you can do to love other people? Do you naturally always when you cook a meal you're always cooked for your family plus one and that's just your natural rhythm you're always cooking for your family plus one and taking it next door or inviting someone in and and again i just imagine again i i don't do this probably to my shame but <laughs> imagine the family for whom the kids growing up in this household that they're used to oh yeah we always uh have a family cook for a meal plus one you know uh who's coming to dinner tonight dad um, who are we inviting in? Yeah, you know, it's just those kinds of things that we can just have that regular rhythm. And you know, uh, what what time are we 
going to church because we always go to church early to make sure we can help serve to do that. When are we finishing church? Oh, we finish church. Yeah, this the service might finish at this point, but we don't go home until two, three hours later because we always want to be spending time in amongst God's people, loving Him. So just building in those rhythms and habits of life, uh, absolutely being and being directed. So you've got to have a clear idea of who God is, a clear idea of who you are as His one of His people. And then, yeah, you're working your way backwards to, okay, so what am I doing each day in order to be more of that kind of person? I think that fits a lot more into the other takeaway that I have from this book, which is uh, you can have a goal, but often, even if you manage to reach whatever the goal is, however ambitious it is or not, there's inevitably a dip afterwards because you've achieved achieved it. Yeah, right. So instead of, um, uh, f- we often see a goal as a thing to be achieved and that it will solve a problem in our life. It'll be a solution to something in our life. And then it ends up being, oh, yes, it's great, I achieved it. But then even the next day, it's just a dip down into, back, oh, it's the same. And it's like almost taking you back, just almost spiralling down back to where you felt you were before and which made you make the goal in the first place. But then you get to that. So like as an example from the book, it's people that say, I'm going to lose a certain amount of weight and they lose a amount of weight and then they just put it back on again, right, for example. Okay. So instead he talks about what habits do you put in place in order to not be so outcome oriented. You can have the goal, but what habits you put in place. So even if you achieve the goal, the habit is the actual thing that you are, you are focusing on and therefore it's making you more like that person you want to be rather than I just achieve goals, have a dip and then achieve another goal. So it's like almost this roller coaster. You don't want oh, to avoid okay, so the roller coaster of going uh, achievement and then or a success as you feel it and then a, a downward spiral and then back up to achievement and back down. It's more being more process-oriented rather than goal-oriented. Okay, so he's saying don't don't put as much weight on a goal as an end point, mm. but the the processes, the steps, build in a regularity of rhythms. Yes. That, yeah, we'll probably most likely hit that goal, but that's not the point. The point yeah. is establishing the rhythms. And he said, uh, because he's an author, he I, th- I think this is his first book, but he started writing an article, a blog article, that's what, he, that's what he basically said, oh, I'll just have a go at this. But then because he was so consistent with it, it led to gaining a larger audience. I think he gained a, an audience of, a, well, I can't, I can't remember the number, but it was a large audience by just being consistent. And mm-hmm. so that's something that I've been focusing on a lot in my life since reading this book and reading Deeper again is, well, the, how I become Deeper is by being consistent and working on that particular thing every single day but making it habitual rather than even if it's something that I don't feel like doing and we all feel lazy at some point and don't want to do something that because it comes so automatic that you're still working on it even when you don't feel like it. So another example from the book is that how athletes often, yes, they, they can be gifted to a certain degree. Genes matter for a certain, to a certain degree, but the thing is... Matter what matters is they do it every single day. Like often people look at people like, for example, um, athletes like Ronaldo and Messi. They say, oh, they're just incredibly gifted. No, 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 no. They were very gifted, but they were also some of the hardest working athletes they've probably ever been because they weren't 
willing to work non-stop towards it. So obviously they're going to have some goals and things like that. I listened to a podcast with uh, the Formula One champion of 2005 and 2006, Fernando Alonso. And, he, and it's on a podcast called The High Performance Podcast. So it's a little bit kind of, it talks about, they've talked about being goal oriented too and how that can affect your mentality. But he said, Fernando Alonso, that they ask him what he's a regrets. He's 41 now and he's the oldest oldest driver on the Formula One grid, has actually stepped away, stepped away from the sport and then came back in. And he was saying, I didn't enjoy the world championships, world championships that I won when it happened enough because he was so goal-oriented to keep going, right. to keep winning, keep winning championships. And I think that's also something that happens with even the athletes that are at the very top of the sport. I think Michael Schumacher was like this in Formula 1. You've got Michael Jordan in the NBA, uh, Tom Brady as well. They, have, they get so successful and need to feel, feel the need to keep having goals that they actually create fake conflict with someone to say, look, I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right, interesting. I don't know if you've seen The Last Dance by Michael, which is about Michael Jordan. And there's even this scene where he is, they used to play a, just a game in the change rooms with some of the security guards. He had a, his own security detail. And they're playing this game where you flick, I can't remember if it was flick coins, but you would bait, you could bait, like they would bet little amounts of money and he would lose, and he'd be like, "No, let's go again." Like I want, I, like he had to beat the security guards. Like, he, and he wanted to keep betting and betting and betting. So he, so Jordan got involved in betting huge amounts of money. He would have poker games where he would drop forty, fifty grand because he just had to win. Like even mm. if he lost, he just had to win. So I think that's an interesting contrast to what we're talking about here as being Christians. Is that how do our habits that we put in place, inform our relationship with God, first of all, but then our relationship to others. Yeah. Um, incidentally, like, do you have any habits like that that you kind of fall back on at the moment? Uh, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The My best self when I'm not sick, and I've been sick again the last two weeks, mm. um, is to to get up um, early, yes. uh, about quarter to five, and go for a run. And during that run, listening to the Bible in a Year podcast and a few other different podcasts as I'm doing that. Mm. And um, then, you know, coming home and getting on with the day. That, that's probably the most regular habit when, it's, when I'm not sick that I have that's, you know, establishing those things. Um, I think as thinking about family discipleship, I think I did better at that when it was easy <laughs> so like when when the kids were really little and we didn't have a lot of extra extracurriculars and other things on as a family life doing you know bath bedroom you know teeth tuck into bed and then read the bible story and pray mm. that there was a good rhythm there that yeah, happened and yeah. then as life got busier uh, we found hard to find a new the new rhythm the, um because every night's a little bit different and everyone's got slightly different things on. And, and so, yeah, trying to find new rhythms for family discipleship and family Bible reading and prayer has been a bit difficult, I think. Yeah. Um, Your so kids are in high school now, aren't they? You're in high school, yep. Um, different nights of the week to have lots of different things. Yeah. And so, 
yeah. that's a battle for us too as a family. Mm. As, they, as they get older, they've got football training and uh, my youngest is three, but my oldest is nine. So there's a bit of a gap, like, and my middle daughter's seven. So they're kind of close together and then there's a bit of a gap to my youngest. So what we're reading different times and now my wife and I split the night. So I, like the two, one of us will take the two older kids right, and, yep. and either read to them. We, uh, the, I mean, the ideal scenario for our family is uh, we have a book here at, <laughs> at the moment. At the moment, the ideal scenario is we have a book here that we produce at Sora Bible called The Commitments Book, which is basically about our values as a church and how we try and practice them. And so we're actually going through that. I'm going through that with my two older yeah, two. Right. And they really enjoy it because they... That's cool. There's in the sec- in each, at the end of each section that talks about... We just finished talking about what it means to be in a Christian community or what the, you know, the family, the church as a family... Um, and there's some verses at the end, so they get to pick a verse. I bought my daughter a, a, a full NIV Bible, so nice. she loves to open it up and, re- and read it, and she gets her own section, and so does my son. Um, and then we talk about things, and we had, for example, we had this, this isn't to brag or anything, but I had, oh, it's just amazing how God works in these scenarios. As long as you make the habits, it, that's an interesting thought I've just had, as long as you make the habits happen, like let's see what God can do mm. in that scenario, that you know, the spirit works in those ways. We talked a lot about like if two or three meet together, um, you know, Jesus says if two or three of us meet together, then I'm I'm with them. What did you say? I've, I've, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm I'm with them. That's yes. yes. It was to that to that effect. And we talked about what does that mean? And then we talked about um, some of my daughter's friends had said something about scripture teachers being liars. What? <laughs> <laughs> Because they talk about God creating the earth, and then we talked about that, saying, "Well, I'm not sure if they're liars. They're just talking about what they believe in." And it was just this wide. Oh, then that's oh, that's the other thing. That's why I talked about um, wanted to talk about the Reformation because my kids asked, "What is what is Protestant Christian? Uh, what yeah, is Protestant right. scripture oh, and what's Catholic scripture?" And got some of their classmates go to Catholic, and yeah, and they go to Protestant. So I think where I'm trying to get to though is again that thing of what habits can we put in place that allow God to work more, I think. Even though God's always going to work more, work, mm. work to, mm. ever, to whatever to his purposes. But I think, yeah, what are we carving out intentionally to allow God even more room into our lives? I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think that, that the carving out time for uh, reading and prayer is going to be a really key thing that to allow God to... Um, you're, you're making space for God mm. to make himself known. You're being attentive, I suppose, is the, is the key thing, that we can, we can be really busy and God, as you said, will be working. He always does. I often look back and think, realise the things that God has blessed me with that I didn't even ask for mm. and just how good he is. You know, he's um, gratuitous in his generosity and <laughs> his, his love. And the gratuitous that, is a good description, yeah. yeah. Um, so... There is there is so much that God gives that we don't ask for, um, mm. but being able to be attentive to those things does mean the habits of slowness, habits of prayer, mm. habits of just reflection. Maybe it's journaling, maybe it's meditation, whatever it is that we're actually creating. Sorry, that we're actually creating uh, space to notice what God is doing. I think is really. Really key part, and we can be doing that together. We can be doing that solo. We can be doing that in community. There's lots of different ways in which we can be expressing that. 
And so I think uh, obviously your individual relationship with God is really key. Your family's relationship with God is really key. Your local church relationship with God, the community that you're building there is really key. There's, and then there's a, you know, we're digitally connected worldwide, you know, culture. So there's people all over the globe that you can be connecting with and hearing from and learning from and mm. those kinds of things mm. as well. So yeah, you've got those kind of concentric circles out. And so in terms of actually allowing God to shape us, uh, that yeah, I think that we do need to be um, allowing the, the space for that. One of the things that I think of is uh, I heard someone interpret the parable of the four soils yep. and they were talking about the, um, you know, the farmer scatters a seed and you've got seed that lands on the path, just gets gobbled up by birds <laughs> and trodden on. You've got uh, seed that lands in the rocky soil that can't get deep enough roots and so it dries up. You've got the seed that lands in the weeds uh, and then you've got the seed that lands in the good soil. And one of the observations that this commentator was making was what is distinct about that last soil is it doesn't have anything else in it. Uh, it there's, a, oh, there, yeah, okay. there's an emptiness. There's a, like it's, it's free of rocks. It's free of weeds. And he used that to kind of um, then spin off on the, this idea of an undistracted life where we actually are intentionally um, cutting out the things that will be the weeds and the rocks and the things that will create a shallow faith and... Uh, and you know, the easy one for our culture is you know, thinking about your digital technology use and uptake and the number of hours people spend on screens and TVs and you know, all of those kinds of bits and pieces. And actually, if you want to carve out space for God uh, and your discipleship with him, and this is the whole you know, habit thing, what's the character you actually want to be uh, the character of formation, someone who is dependent on Christ, in communion with Christ, uh, with Jesus in relationship, then you actually need to just carve out that space and be really intentional about that. Mm. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, I thought before we move on, a, a practical scenario that I will take from Atomic Habits was that he says, to implement new habits, start with the implementation intention, which is basically writing all your habits down and then saying, when situation X arises, I will perform response Y. So, for example, when I get up, like you you have, when I get up at this time, I will go for a run. That's the first thing. And then he says to stack them to be able to get a lot done, like a lot of the habits done all in one go. So, as you were saying, I will go for a run. But then he says, after I go for a run then I will have my Bible reading time, for example. Yep. I, will, I will read my Bible. I will read one chapter of my Bible at this specific time and then stack habits after. So after I have read my Bible, then I will pray. I will pray for 15 to 20 minutes. And I think that that's, that's been helpful for me to go, oh, how can I stack habits together to mm. make them more interesting but also more time efficient, I suppose. But then also, like, it's, if you're doing that, again, we're talking about the consistency. If you're doing that every single day, like, he's, he even says, James Clear, like, th- if you do something 1% better every day, you get 37% better at the end of a year. So do it right. for 365 days, you have a minimum 37% better. So imagine if we're doing 
two percent better. Like the 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 magnitude of how much better it will get yep. even our relationship with God. If we are doing this, if we even if we're just reading a chapter of the Bible every single day, the thirty seven percent better as a Christian is like imagine how much better our relationship will be if we're doing that. Because I think there is a almost a hesitancy to go. I need to change this in my life. I need mm. like I, I wonder, and I, I can't speak for anyone. But I wonder what our, like as a, as a Christian family, even here at Soul Roll Church, what are our Bible reading habits like? Mm. Like if we, if we want, if we're going to say we're Christians, are we? Mm. Are, and this is me speaking to myself: is that what is God? If I want to be a Christian, I need to hear what God has to tell me. Yep, yep. And the best way to do that, obviously, is the Bible, mm. and then to be in conversation with Him via prayer. I would say my prayer life is not very good right now. I'm only getting it one way. I'm not going back the other way yeah, yeah. God. Yep. so I'm uh, yeah, I wonder why there's so much hesitancy to actually you know if we we are talking about the God of the universe we say yes you have saved us from our sins why why are we not going I need to make sure this time I'm going to use this use at least a small portion of my time for him yeah like I think I think we need to do that anyway that's mm. that's where I've been getting to with all that mm. um, and it's I think it's important with this conversation that to go back to what we said earlier about the n shape and the u shape yeah. approaches to God that yeah and I'm in danger of going n shape rather than u shape too absolutely and any of these topics about spiritual formation spiritual disciplines habit stacking in terms of being coming more like Christ uh, there's a there's a very clear danger of that we're becoming more n shape that uh, I'm going to do I'm going to read 1% more of a chapter every day mm. I'm going to pray 1% better every day I'm going to meditate 1% longer every day and in the hope that fingers crossed n shape gospel that God will notice me and therefore pour out his blessings on me um, and we've got to keep coming back and saying no 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 uh, yes prayer is Awesome. Communicating with the God of the universe who saved you in the person of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? Of course you're going to want to give time towards that. Hearing from him in his word, absolutely. Sitting in silence and meditation with him and just sort of reveling in who he is, absolutely you want to be better at that. Um, but it is always in a U-shape. We only ever do those things out of response for what he has already done. And it's... It's really, really tricky and this is where I think people get caught up all the time and it's, it was institutionalised in the Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation. Um, it's easy for us to come and fall into the same trap to think that I'm doing these things so that God will notice me, so that God will bless mm. me, so that... And it's like, no, no, no. As soon as we start thinking in that, we're falling back into a pagan, N-shaped relationship with God. It's... No, no, God has done everything, absolutely everything. He has resurrected me from death to spiritual life. He is united with me with Christ. I am right now sitting in the heavenly realms in some sort of mystical way. I am united with Christ right now as he sits before yeah. the throne of God. Yeah. Um, and therefore, response, coming back up to you, I will strive to know him more, mm. talk to him more engage with him more, engage with his people more, lead my family more, talk to my friends more, you know, what, like all of these kind of things that we do, but they're always responses um, because of what Christ has done. Uh, and it's very easy to get guys too confused. Well, I think you're right. I think probably I've spent a lot of my Christian life confusing them because I, my tendency is to, 
if something's not right or something needs to be changed, it's my I think my first response is just do more. Yeah, like do more, and then all it will solve it. Yeah, but I I think I've come come a cropper with those things sometimes. Is like you're doing too much. You're doing too much to try and force it. Yeah, rather than allowing God to speak into it. And a good test case was asking yourself when you fail to read tomorrow or when you engage in an activity that you knew was sinful but you did it anyway what do you imagine god's attitude towards you is in that moment yeah yeah and if you think he's oh he's disappointed with me (laughs) he's he's full of shame uh he's angry at me you've probably got a bit more of an end shape understanding if it's not something on the lines of he's the loving father that is wrapped his arm and goes, I'm still here for you, Joel. Mm. Yeah, I'm still here for you, Tim. Um, yeah, yeah, that was stupid, but <laughs> I'm, I, I never left you. Uh, I'm, ne- I'm always with you. It didn't matter how far you've gone. I was always here. Uh, and if, if that's the picture we can capture in our head, um, and the other tendency then is to, oh, cool, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I continue in sin. It doesn't matter yeah. if I don't read because God's always going to love me. It's like, no, well, that's not the right response either. Like, just because... You know, my wife is always going to love me no matter, you know, what I do with my money, for example, what our money. doesn't mean that if I can go and be reckless that it's, you know, going to be healthy for our relationship, mm-hmm. you know. So it's the same thing. It's not going to be healthy for your relationship with God to indulge in sin and to not read and to not pray and to not meditate. Um, yeah, you want a healthy, flourishing, fostered relationship with him. Um, but yeah, it's a, like it's so hard to talk about these things without confusing the two. And yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, something I learned when we were doing the course with you is that God, uh, God is an and, not a either or. Yeah, we did talk about all those about things. Like yeah, a, there's like a lot of false dichotomies that we yeah, try and then like uh, justification force. and sanctification. Justification becomes comes first, but sanctification is a result of being justified. And so it's not one, if we get either of them mixed around, it doesn't work. Yep. Or it gets mixed around like you're saying, but God is a and. It's like you're justified and therefore you are sanctified and you will continually be sanctified. But to be continually be sanctified, you need to keep returning to knowing the knowledge that you've been justified. And I suppose we're talking about these habits and I'd be able to implement a habit for probably four days a week of this reading my Bible, journaling and reading a non-fiction book in the mornings which I've loved. I've been really, really, I felt like a lot calmer. I feel like I've made some progress on my, mm. my life or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, yep. And now out of that, I want to do that more often. I want to do that more days in the week rather than less. And I think that's probably the healthier way that you're talking about. And again, putting God first rather than saying, if I just do more, God will, I will earn favour with God. Yes. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. So we've, all really good things to start thinking about. Hopefully that's helpful for some people. But <laughs> some other things that we can talk about is uh, you have been on a conference for the majority of the week I with have. YouthWorks. Yes. House Conference. Is yes, that right? Yes, that's cool. What, what is House Conference? Uh, House Conference is a conference for youth and children's ministers primarily. There's also a number of senior ministers who mm. come along um, and other SRE teachers, school chaplains, but essentially those who are engaged in discipling young people. And one of the distinctives of House Conference is that we do some academic papers, so quite high-level kind of engagement, 
of then lots of time debriefing that and putting it into practice. Okay. And so we do a smaller amount of content for a much longer time uh, oh, than many conferences. So a lot of conferences are, you know, here's a 90-minute session. Someone will talk at you for 90 minutes. Great. Go have a half-hour <laughs> coffee and come back. Someone else will talk, talk at you, you for 90 minutes. and <laughs> yeah. Go for a half-hour lunch, come back. Someone else will talk to you and then you, you know, sort of thing but we the format of this is now we have one uh speaker in a morning and we spend most of the day up through to lunchtime uh debriefing their content and there'll be responses to their paper and there'll be q a and questions from the floor but there'll also be a lot of table discussion mm. and i was talking to one person who i met yesterday they said oh just i wasn't really sure what to expect but this was so different to other conferences um i loved it it was great like just the amount of space and freedom there was to have a conversation and you know everyone there works with youth and children's we organize the table group so you're in the same table each day and that you are with people who are in your similar type of ministry so i was at a table of eight other seven other children's ministers so we're all children's ministers we're all thinking about how do you apply this to you know zero to 12 year olds and tossing around ideas and helping ideas so that's the kind of the what house is and every year's obviously a different theme this theme was all about emotions so we called mm. it all the feels um how do you uh, disciple the emotions of young people mm. and so that was the the basic content of the of the week now you've got your notebook here that i believe you were given at the conference yes very right? very nice little moleskin very nice uh, yeah we we're having a yeah. bit of debate on that about whether it's i've heard it's moleskina i used to call it moleskin but now moleskina moleskina i don't it's know a, yeah it is a i mean it could be i know it's, it's a scandinavian brand that's all I sure know. but um yeah i'm happy for someone to correct me about that in the that's comments. right i'm australian i don't know how to pronounce anything <laughs> get one of those if i like going to a restaurant not understanding what half the things on the menu are so. <laughs> yeah you gotta like what, is, what is this thing it's, i had to google burrata because i knew it was a cheese but <laughs> i didn't know what it looked like the other day right so that makes enti entire sense to me. Uh, yep. What was the? What's your biggest takeaway from emotions at house conference? Um, one of the one of the things we talked about, and so um, the Reverend Dr. Keith Condy um, was one of our speakers, and he talked about that the the often we think about categories of emotions that there are good emotions, there are bad emotions, mm. and so you know joy, happiness, you know light kind of stuff is all in the good, angry, sad mad etc are in the bad category and he sort of blew up those categories and mm. said no that's just <laughs> it's not the right way to think about right. uh, emotions at all in terms of being you know a christian approach to emotions really what the interrogation of an emotion the analysis of it and whether it is good or bad is how is it being directed and so good emotions are those that are directed towards God, his word, his world, and the way that he's revealed himself. Uh, and that might be, there might be joyful things that are directed towards God. There might be anger at injustice that's directed towards God. There could be mourning and grief and wailing and pain that is directed towards God. And all of those would be good emotions if they are properly directed towards God uh, and who he has revealed himself to be. Likewise, uh, I can be really joyful and happy in a sinful action or in a something self-destructive or I can be really angry for the wrong reasons. And so all of that big spectrum of emotions can be sinfully directed. They can be directed towards selfishness, towards hurt, pain. They can be directed towards things that are unhelpful. And so, yeah, not this simplistic 
good and bad, but what does it mean to have emotions that a God would directed? And the, the big application with that, and I'm still trying to think this through, is therefore, how do you disciple young people who are having big emotions? And I'm thinking, I mean, in, in our family, but also in children's ministry in a church, you have a child who is enraged. You know, my immediate gut impulse is, oh, stop that. Because that's a bad emotion. We interpret, I'm sorry, I'm just going to check and see if you, if you agree with this, but when children act out in certain ways, whether they hit each other or steal off each other, we interpret that as bad behaviour, but it's often their current situation they're unable to handle or understand what their emotions are. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And obviously, you know, violence is always going to be wrong. Destructive yeah. is always going to be wrong but that doesn't mean that the emotion they're feeling is wrong mm, they might be feeling sad about something and don't know how to express it exactly and they might be feeling sad because of an injustice yep um and the injustice might be that they got you know they opened their packet of little mini oreos and there was only six in their packet and the person next to them opened their packet of oreos and there were seven oreos yep. in your packet yep. and that's an injustice it's mm. not fair mm. you know you, you we got the same presumably the same morning tea, and yet it looks like you got more than me and in my immaturity of age, I express that in frustration. And so there might be something there that say actually, yeah, like there is a, there is a goodness to fairness. There is a goodness to equal distribution, yeah, that we would expect to get a certain number of Oreos in the packet or whatever it is. And so there emotion that they're feeling may actually be um, a it's, it's not necessarily right or wrong um, it's it's how it's been directed and so the one thing I'm wondering about is how do you help children and young people to analyze their emotions and to think about their emotions and to direct them towards God uh, also knowing that in those moments particularly when you have uh, high anxiety high uh, emotional, you know, they're, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're sad, they're wailing, they're, they're, they're all emotions that we need to uh, calm down from before we can analyse them. Yes. Uh, and so before you can actually help them to think through, okay, was that an appropriate use of anger or was it an inappropriate use of anger? Was it a, a good feeling of grief or was it a bad feeling of grief yeah mm. before we can help that they need to have gone through that emotion and so therefore what does it mean to help them hold in that space to be able to express it to have the freedom to potentially express big emotions in a way that when you also have a family or a household or a children's ministry to look after they're not the only ones in the space so they can't just go for it uh, and so yeah, there's, lot, there's always a complexity there. But creating spaces that are nurturing and emotionally safe for children as well and just trying to think about how to, to do that. So there's a lot of things there that I'm trying to think through. Um, but that was one of my big takeaway was just don't have simplistic good emotions, bad emotions, praise the good, yeah. punish the bad uh, or discourage the bad. But redesign your entire framework to think about Here's an emotion. Is it appropriately God directed, or is it inappropriately other person or mm. selfishly directed? Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, one thing that I found 
and I don't remember where I found it, but uh, in terms of parenting was, I have been always been quite, made quite aware of that. I think there's a particular book that I like called um, Self-Confident Baby, mm -hmm. which helps you, under, uh, helped me maybe further understand that when my son hits his sister, it's not because he actually wants to hit his sister. He has, whatever age he is, it has certain, he's displaying a certain incapacity to be able to, at this time, to be able to say, I don't like what you're doing. And usually, for example, when that happens, my, my daughter is not listening to him, for example. So he says he's trying, he's pushing it further and further and further and it just raises the emotion up higher. So then he lashes out like yes. that. Yes. And I think... This is my opinion or theory is that I think sometimes we see a child do that and we go, that child's a bad child. Mm. And I think if we do what you're saying with around the emotions of that, I think we'll find that actually not any child is bad. They are a product of their environment and how they've been helped to manage their emotions and whether they have been helped or they've just been told every single thing they do is bad. And I've the way that I sometimes look at it is like, even so even with sharing toys, so you talk about um, uh, being fair. Often we say, oh, go and share with your friends. But I sometimes try and flip that on its head and go, what if I had something that I was really happy with, really liked playing with? Mm. So, for example, my thing right now is watches. If I got a watch that I really liked and then someone, a giant, came <laughs> up and told me to go and share my watch with people because yeah. that's what everyone... That's what the giant wants to see. Yeah. What am I going to do? It's like, hold on, it's my watch. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like there's a similar kind of things. So I think and that's what you're talking about is that like, how do we respect where children are at and help them in yeah, that scenario? Um, and yeah, so one thing I found really helpful with parenting, a question that I found is like, when they are in that scenario is, what do you want me to know that I don't know right now? If I just say that to my children sometimes, ah, okay. they'll say, oh, my sister did this That's and this happened. Line. Line. Yeah, it's it's really, really helpful for me as a parent. And it and it's that and then you find out a couple other things. So that has actually influenced that behaviour that is not appropriate, like hitting or, you know, lashing out at someone or um yelling when they shouldn't but they're, they're, what the children are actually trying to communicate with you is I am in a heightened state of emotion. I don't know how to deal with it. Help, help me. It's a cry. Mm. It's a cry out for help. Like, help mm. me out. Help me out here. I don't, don't know what to do. But we often go, that's bad. Mm. And so then we're creating the shame of you're bad for having emotions, not knowing what to do with them. But as, even as adults, we have emotions. We don't know what to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, yeah. And, yeah. We, and, we, and, and the labeling of a character based on an emotional expression or yeah. emotional release. Yeah, that, that's all problematic. The, the other speaker was um, Dr. Kamina Worst, and she flew down from Queensland to be with us, and she flew down with her six-week-old baby. Mm. And she was just recounting as she stood up to start speaking that uh, <laughs> her baby slept through the entire flight. Yep. And someone came up to her as they are all disembarking and said, oh, wasn't your baby good during the flight? Yeah, you were a good baby. You are a good yeah, baby. Yeah. She's like, would have them reacting to... Air pressure and the in pain that they caught, the yeah. uncomfortableness, <laughs> yeah. and would crying have made them bad? Like, mm. but again, just kind of this: we we, we do label char person character um, based on particular emotions. Sometimes mm. um, is yeah, I mean, the, 
very rarely will a child choose to act out in this way. It's like they mm. sit there rationally going, I think I'm going to scream now for five <laughs> minutes yeah. and I'm going to make sure that my father gets my attention mm. um, and I will continue to scream and if he doesn't, I will throw a chair at him. <laughs> like, it's, th- th- that hasn't been a rational process to get to that point. They are expressing uh, frustration as best mm. and... Yeah, that yeah. there is there is something that they know that you don't know, but they yeah. know like that that they don't have the words to describe or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and so, and it goes the other way, for, like for positive emotions, like why are you dancing around yeah. the house yeah. um, and flinging your arms about yeah. uh, with abandon? Yeah. And so, because I'm so joyful, because yeah. something really great happened, and I don't know how else to express that mm. other than just being free and unabandoned and and just go that's great but you know watch out for the vase or watch out for the pile of something something there and you know um and so yeah just helping them to be able to express helpfully and that was the other thing was that i took away was it there is a, a goodness to uh uninhibited displays of emotion we often try and put emotion in a box uh and particularly uh so Christians generally, but particularly uh, evangelical reformed tribe of Christians, much more than, say, a uh, charismatic Pentecostal tribe would say, don't express emotions. Emotions, always be um, nervous about them, always be sceptical about them. And if you have any, make sure you try and push it way, way down where no one will find it. Yep. And Kamina was really helpful in thinking about what are some of the reasons that we might have done that, some of the uh, good reasons gone wrong. And so one is she mentioned that uh, Paul talks about being self-controlled and we often assume that therefore self-control is the opposite of any sort of emotional expression. Mm. And therefore the, we interpret his uh, comment about being self-controlled as having to be stoic and expressionless and mm. unemotive. Yep. And um, Kamina helpfully walked through a number of parts of the Scripture, but particularly Song of Songs, uh, and explain that there is a right exuberance and delight and over-the-top emotion, which actually can be directed positively towards God, his world, his people, in yeah, ways that are God-honouring. And it's the Bible does not uh, actually say the best way to be a Christian is to be unemotive. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's what I wonder about is like, well, God's given us emotions for a reason. But then, of course, they're corrupted by sin, mm. right? Because we live in a fallen world. And so I think that's, I mean, you're helping me grapple with that thing because I, I do think I'm as try, well, I'm trying really hard as a parent to like understand their emotions so they can, when they're older, they know how to, they, they feel equipped to process them and be able to not lash out in an adult version, which is even like is a, a far worse than an inappropriate behaviour when they're children. Because mm. they've got bigger bodies, bigger muscles, bigger impact all, in the all world. All of that stuff. Like yeah. if I go and hit my sister in the face now, it's <laughs> not a good move, you know. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. But um, And I do, like I, I really, um, that good reasons gone wrong really resonated with me about the things that we're talking about is that when they um, said to that lecturer that you had, oh, your baby was good, you think about it, well, why, yeah, why was it good? It's because, oh, if a baby's crying uninhibited and we don't know how to help the baby, then we're stressed. But then we're also stressed because I don't want other people to have to deal with this constant crying all the time. And what are they going to think of me 
as a as a parent mm. if I am actually doing a good job. And it's the same with the the sharing thing. Is like, I think sometimes parents are, oh, there's a lot of other kids and parents around. Make sure you're sharing because that shows that I'm being a good parent. Or is it being a good parent, or it's just like, oh, is that what we should do? Because we need to learn fairness. Fairness is an important thing. Yeah. But yep. is that the best way to help your child by forcing them to share something that is theirs and we wouldn't do it to ourselves because we we want other people to know that we're fair or we want our child to be seen as being fair and I think yeah that good reasons gone wrong is really helpful to keep thinking like that did you have a good time at house conference great time yeah that sounds like you did it sounds like it was really helpful oh yeah it's always great and it's always a really great balance between uh excellent content and being able to digest it over time I love that approach that's Um, really cool which is excellent. And then also, you know, 160 of my closest friends who are all in ministry <laughs> together. Um, no, I mean, I don't know everyone there, but it's uh, lots of people who I've spent a lot of time with in children's and youth ministry uh, who are very good friends mm. in ministry. And yeah, I think it's, it's lovely to be able to spend that much time with them and just catch up with them. And, you know, one guy I was just chatting to very briefly yesterday and he's had another baby since I last saw him. So just mm. get, catch him on family. And yeah. so there's heaps of relational stuff that happens too, and yeah, particularly so people you've known for a long time. That's so cool. It's lots of fun. Uh, it's, uh, and that sounds like it was really cool. So I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to attend. Mm. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about mm. was uh, you've been chosen to have an a, a academic paper published. Is that correct? I have, yes. What? <laughs> I was commenting before, it's a rather long title. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And you said that's a, a, a strategic approach, so you appear in Google Scholar. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Is that right? If, if anyone uh, has spent time looking at academic journals, they usually have uh, a lot of, um, what do you, you know, what are you, $10 words or as opposed to five cent words or whatever. <laughs> They've got a lot of big words. You've got to fit a lot of big words in your title. And part of it is, um, I don't know what's the academic equivalent of virtue signaling. You're, you're, you, um, you're trying to um, maximise the effectiveness of the title, so the people will, who are interested in your topic will come across your title. Yep. Um, because from the other side, and I do this all the time when I'm researching. Uh, I want to know who has written about this on this topic. So I'll go into Google Scholar and I'll just type in a few keywords uh, and it'll hit, you know, here's 300 papers that come up with your keywords. And it's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'll just, I'll just scan through real quickly uh, all the titles of uh, all the papers and go, no, 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 no. Oh, maybe. Click open that to the new tab. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. And so... What you want is you want to represent in your title actually the key things that your article is about so that people who are flicking through hundreds and hundreds of titles will stop on yours and go, oh, yeah. So you don't want to mislead anyone because then they're going to read your article, read your abstract, read the title, read the abstract, read the paper and go, well, that was frustrating. It actually had nothing to do with the title. So you don't want to mislead people. That's frustrating. Yeah, Yeah, it's just a waste of people's time. But you do want to try and get as many of your buzzwords into your title <laughs> and then even more so in your abstract. Because the next level is out of the 200 that you've found, that you know, 200 hits, you might have siphoned off 50 and then you read the abstracts of 50 and you realise that 25 of those are actually no good because the titles were a little bit misleading or, oh, no, they've taken that at an angle I don't really interested in. And then you end up with 
out of you know 200 titles you end up with the 30 um, that you're actually interested in so this is another occasion of the internet changing an industry like do you think it used uh, to be like that with academic papers that's a great question i'm too young to really know the answer to that question oh, yeah, but, but i think i mean you always had catalogs that yes. you um and databases um it was more laborious to have to go through and you might actually have to sit there with a journal and flick through open the, open the cover scan <laughs> the title but you're doing the same thing you scan the titles mm. no nope, not that one open the cover the next one no nope, okay. not that one so it saves time so I'm not quite sure what it's meant in terms of changing titles and abstracts and those kinds of things, uh, but it's certainly much more efficient process. Mm. And so what is the title? The, the, my title. The title is mm. uh, Integrating Rogoff's Socio-Cultural Development Theories for Effective Faith Transmission in Confessional, confessional Anglican Churches, a Case Study of the Sydney Diocese. Wow. Um. And so what would I read in the abstract? <laughs> so what's it, what's it about? Yeah, so what I'm trying to, well, like the signal, like, again, I mean, only academic people are going to be interested in reading this kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's not written for, uh, you know, normal people. I've read, uh, the way you said that was like so dismissive of people that aren't academic. No, no, no as, in, as in like it would not be of interest to yeah, yeah. most people. Um, most listeners of the podcast are not going to care on these, about these 4,000, 5,000 words that I've written. Um, <laughs> But there are key words. So, I mean, Rogoff, so she's a particular anthropologist. So I'm signalling, I'm working on her. So anyone who's looking at who is Rogoff and how she influenced different f uh, fields will come across mine and go, oh, that's interesting. She's influenced thinking about faith formation. Mm. Yeah, so that's significant. Um, uh, Socio-cultural was another just buzzword. People who are particularly interested in that subfield will pick up on that. Um, faith transmission is basically the fancy academic word for how do you become Christians and how do you pass Christianity on through generations and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then also signalling that um, I was focused narrowly on Anglican churches and used the Sydney Anglican Church as my narrow field because that's what I can actually speak articulately about. Um, what happens in Anglican churches in New York City? No idea. Yep. Um, and I'm not trying to say that I know what happens to England mm. churches. Is that the reason you don't want to go to New York? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you don't have to study them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there's Anglican churches everywhere. Am I talking yeah. about Anglicans globally? No, I'm not. I'm mm. not even pretending to talk about Anglicans globally. Um, I have first-hand knowledge of Anglicans in Sydney um, and children's ministry in Anglican churches in Sydney. And that's so... And again, that's just all kind of academic buzzword speak for like being able to really fine tune to know what you're talking about. Mm. And uh, are you happy you're being published? Oh, Is that you've been, yeah, yeah. you've been aiming for? Yeah, like, and again, for uh, someone who wants to continue to, to carve out space in um, academic space and, and research and learning and those kinds of things, uh, being able to be peer reviewed and published in mm. journals is a really significant step so yeah so I'm, I'm really stoked what's the i mean isn't the way to best read journal articles this is what i eventually learned at university was to read the abstract and read the conclusion and not worry about the whole bit in the middle yeah what, so would, I, what would i get if i read the conclusion um so it, it depends on the field that Ooh, you're in yes. 
No, as in, uh, diff- like, if you're doing science, if you're reading science journals yeah. or medical journals, they're very different to humanities yeah, okay. journals. And if you're reading something that is r- research-based, like, actually someone did a, a survey and they're re- doing a journal article on that, that's one type of writing. Mm. What I've done is a, uh, basically like an essay format where I've played authors off against each other and tried to okay. think about implications. And yep. so it... Th- Different styles of journal articles will have different types of readership and have different types of things. And so, and it also depends what you're looking for as the reader. Mm. So there, there might be a lot of those research-based articles where you're not interested in their methodology. You don't care how they constructed their questions. Um, you're not, you don't care about their sample size. You don't care about all these kind of things. You just kind of want to know what was the key insight that they found the reflection. So in that case, yes, read an abstract, read the conclusion, and you'll get a good idea of how this impacts the field or the area of study that you're interested in. Um, and far fewer people will be interested in, you know, the massive section in the middle that talks about methodology, um, for example. So mine is much more of a sort of a narrative all the way through. Like it does have intro, middle, conclusion, but it's, it is just an essay, basically. Uh, and so... Yeah, if you um, – so I, I set up the question, what, who is Rogoff? Um, what did she particularly notice? Uh, what, is, uh, what is the Anglican Church? What is the community? What are the beliefs, faiths, patterns and practices that Anglican churches have? Um, and then I do start globally. I say Anglican theology is this. In Sydney, expressed like this. Sydney Children's Ministry looks like this. Um, and then what is, who, who was Rogoff? What did she do? What was her key insight? And her key insight is that children learn in traditional communities by being involved in the community and actually having genuine participation mm. in the community. Yep. Uh, and she compares that to a Western industrialised schooling where the adult production in South society happens over there in the office in the factory in the away from home uh, and after school kind of thing too yeah well and well so like industrial revolution you have factories come up yes. and the parents uh, go to factories to be part of the production of their society uh, you're making cars or you're making clothes or you're making you know whatever uh, and Rightfully, children are excluded from those places because they're dangerous. Mm. And so there was you know, a period where children were involved in factory work and then we had <laughs> child labour laws and we said, no, children can't work. But we remove children from the productive elements of our society and therefore you have to create um, mini communities of age segregation, which we call schools, yep. where it's only children there and their teachers. Mm. Um, but it's removed from the real world mm. of production. And so what that means is that you are learning in abstract what one day you will have to put into practice. So every year nine kid who's learned trigonometry, what do I have to learn this, sir? Well, one day you might be an engineer and you might need to know this. And so uh, that's kind of an industrial westernised schooling because children are removed from the productive life of their communities. Whereas in traditional communities, uh, you are in, children are involved in the productive life of their community. They are out in the fields picking berries. They are learning how to fish. They are cutting up coconuts. They are whatever it is. Learning how to fix boots. Yeah, exactly. So now, 
Rogoff's not saying we should go back to that as some sort of utopian, but she is noticing that children in those communities take on the beliefs, patterns and practices uh, more and at a deeper level than uh, in a westernised world where children are learning things in the abstract and are removed from the productive life of the community. So I wonder, <laughs> and this is my article, whether the way we do children's ministry sometimes is we remove children from the life of the productive life of the adult service and when i say productive obviously it's about spiritual formation it's about becoming more like christ it's growing our knowledge love and obedience to king jesus but we remove kids from that and we put them over here and we wonder about the way in which we we teach them fruits of the spirit and ten commandments and the narratives of scripture and the parables of jesus uh and I wonder if we don't mean to say this, and no one, or very few people would actually say this, but there's a sense in which I'm teaching you these things because one day you'll be a real Christian and you might need them. Mm. So there's this kind of undercurrent. I'm not including you mm. in the life of the community. You're over there. Uh, and one day you get to graduate into the real community, but not yet. Uh, and so part of it is an argument for intergenerational ministry because the children are engaged in community. Um, and we talked a few weeks ago about, yeah, there might be the worship service, the, the congregational service time, but it doesn't have to be. There's lots of other things. It, it might be the working bees. It might be the meals that we have afterwards. It might be uh, prayer meetings. It might be midweek stuff. Like there's lots of different things that a church community does are children engaged in the life of the community as genuine participants? And if they are, Rogoff suggests that they will more um, intentionally, maybe not intentionally, they're more likely to take on the beliefs, patterns and practices. Imbibe. Imbibe, Mm. that's the word. Mm. They will imbibe the beliefs, patterns and practices of their Mm. community more so than those who have been Mm. segregated out. And so if you read my conclusion, (laughs) you would then get to... Um, applications for children's ministry. Yeah, cool. And it sounds a little bit like it's uh, that good reason's gone wrong thing kind of thing. It's the good reason is that the adults need to have engaging with the engaging with the word uh, intellectually, and that was something you talked about a few weeks ago mm. too. So, what are mm. we being distracted from? Yeah, was are we being distracted from the thing that? Is it very, very important, but is it the only thing that we are being distracted from and we are missing some other parts that you're talking about there of, of yep. children imbibing the practices and uh, relational aspects of church? Mm. Because we'll just, and we've talked about it before, it's sometimes that unfortunately some children's ministry is just seen as a babysitting service to yeah, a certain yeah. degree yep. and is not understanding what Rogoff is saying of... No, no, if children are involved, they pick up... I mean, I'm struck by the fact you're saying that are we saying to children, you will be a real Christian one day? Like, that just goes again. I mean, if that is the case, and it could be a long... Mm. People aren't intentionally doing that, I don't think, but it could be saying, are you saying that to children in a yeah. particular way? I mean, there are some uh, approaches to youth and children's ministry that, that reflect does that. reflect that. Yeah. I mean, we talked... Um, not that many episodes ago, we were talk. Uh, I was arguing with Stu 
about whether we're the strategic approach oh, or yeah. not. We talked about <laughs> intellectual the, stash. Yeah, yeah intellectual stash. Uh, <laughs> we talk about the four views of youth ministry. One of the other four views of youth ministry is the preparatory model, mm. which is very explicitly saying uh, we are preparing teenagers to be the church of tomorrow. Uh, and so that would very clearly be saying, just like we're preparing school students to be the workers of tomorrow, we are training our Sunday school and our youth group kids to be the church of tomorrow uh, without any expectation that they are actually the church of today. Just yep. like kids in school are not the workers of today, they're the workers of tomorrow. Mm. And so that approach does come in there. And one of the key things that I point out, because that we're Anglicans, Anglicans do baptise infants. They do believe children are part of the community of God now. They are covenant members of the local church. Yep. And therefore, we of all denominations and others that baptise infants should be integrating our children because we actually um, have the theological grounding and resources to say we believe children are the church of today. Um, and that, that's a deeply formed historical Anglican view. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, yeah, it makes sense. I, I, I apologise if I seem a bit distracted, but I know there's a an article that I've found which talks about how in almost like the way that we're schooling, and I think this fits with what you're saying, of we're not preparing we're often not preparing children for life at school. It's more, this is a stage in life that you're at and then then we'll pass you on to the next stage, like you're saying, rather than uh, children learning skills that they will use later on. So I can't remember the people that he actually used as an example, the write-up, but saying that there was... There was a time where very gifted people were working, even they were 14 or 15, on an intellectual pursuit or a creative activity or something like that prior to actually leaving school. Like we didn't leave all the supposed, you know, textbook learning, as you want to call it, mm. for school, school years. And then, oh, let's see what you can do with that learning and think creatively. And then almost saying, we're doing it, we're leaving it too late. You, you've now conditioned or industrialized children to a certain degree that they just uh, come out of the fa- come out of the factory and get the job and then they stay in the job for a long time. So the argument was, no, you need to we need to prepare them to be flexible and to be to understand that they can create solutions on their own rather than relying on what the textbook says in inverted commas. Um, so what everything you're saying there makes. It, really interesting uh, food for thought, I think. Mm. And uh, when does it get published, your article? Do we know? Oh, I've we, got can, no idea. we can direct no. people to it. No, I'm not sure when that would... Okay. Haven't got a date. All right. Well, we'll once we do, we'll... Yeah. We'll I was just going to say one of, the, one of the cool pictures that Rogoff uses, I, I'll show you maybe, I'll, I'll show this to Eck, but it's this very, very little toddler, um, 11-month-old with a machete, opening up wow. um, fruit. And she just uses this as an example of, actually kids are very capable. We don't have to wait, as this is what you're saying, like we often leave too late the opportunity for kids to be mm. engaged in the productive life of community. Yep. And 
and again, I mean, there's there's a whole lot of things in a westernised society which is highly industrialised. You know, we, we do want to keep kids safe. It's not physically appropriate for many kids to be in many workplaces. Mm. But when it, we think about the church, there are lots of things that we do in the church that children are very capable of doing and we should be drawing them into and helping them to participate and contribute. Mm. Oh, and, and I think you're right. And I did find that article which is called School Is Not Enough by someone called Simon Saris. And he references how many biographies he, he read. And, for example, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci was a studio apprentice to someone called Verrocchio when he was 14. Walt Disney had jobs basically delivering papers, but by the time he was 11. Um, uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, he, fi- he finished schooling at 12 and 13, and was 13 when he began his second job as a telegraph office boy. And by, the six, by 16, he was the family's mainstay of income. So it's quite a... A capitalistic economical mm. argument but i just thought it was interesting is that do they he asked the question do they have do children have useful childhoods for the rest of their lives because childhood uh although we focus on childhood a lot it's actually only a small portion of our lives which is again thinking about back to your discussions around house conference is are we looking at children in a respectful and um loving way that that's the stage that they're at right now how do we help them with their emotions at this stage so that they can be better how can we be useful parents any or useful children's leaders or just leaders or adults so they can have useful lives further on so mm. um yeah anyway we should wrap it up uh one last question i had for you though uh we had eric who you met at house conference and has emailed us before and has been oh, yes. part of Soul yeah, Revival yep, yep. before. I've known Eric for many, many years. Yeah, and um, he's at Maitland uh, Evangelical Church. And he asked, he, it was cool because he, he said that when he was part of Soul Revival, meeting together and part of the Treehouse, which was a network that we created um, when Soul Revival Youth Community and um, Young Adults was at Guymere Anglican. And uh, they played actually played Schlocker and we had a, a Narrabeen Church versus... Menai Church versus Gaimir Church, mm. and uh, he's he was reflecting on that. Now we might leave part of his question about the treehouse until Stu comes back on the podcast. But uh, just I just as a bit of fun, do you have any memories of playing Schlocker yourself? I I'm not confident that I ever played Schlocker. Okay, that's all right. I think I may have somehow missed each of those events. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I definitely knew it was in my awareness. Mm. I probably played it. I may have played it at some point. But those big, the, like the big ones everyone talks about, the time when <laughs> Rosie shattered her ankle and the... Um, <laughs> yeah, that the, was the, the only time I played slot. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think I was there that night. Um, I'm not, I can't remember why. Mm. And the, the big Gaimir, Narrabeen, Menai match, again, mm. um, I think it may have been at a Josiah festival. Yes, I missed that one. So I missed that one as well. Mm. So the... It, it Schlocker exists in my cultural awareness, but I, I don't actually remember playing it. So it was, it was great right. listening to the guys last week. Yeah, and we should get it. the creator of the game on Jai. Absolutely. Our planning pastor at one point to actually explain it. But yeah, he planned it very well. Sounds like Schlocker is a... Uh, it's it's had a re-emergence. They, play, they played it at youth last week as well. Yes, they So they did. played it on youth yeah, camp yeah. and then they played it at youth yep. as well. So we'll have to... Uh, Keep an eye on the resurgence of Slocker. Anyway, uh, Eric, we will answer your question about uh, the philosophy around the, the treehouse 
in another time when probably Stu's here because that yeah, would be helpful as well. But uh, Tim, it's been a really fun and wide-ranging podcast. It has. I think we sat down and said, what are we going to talk about? And then I think no we've idea. talked for quite a while about <laughs> many, many things. So it's been really fun. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to us. Drop us a comment on YouTube if you wish, and you can email me at joel at shogglesorba.com.au if that's more taking your fancy. But uh, for now, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Podcast app or on YouTube. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Joel. And we'll finish with a one way. One way. One way.